Welcome to Rocking Your Prize. I'm delighted to welcome Wando Achebe, Professor of History and Associate Dean at Michigan State University. Today, we are discussing her monumental new book, Female Monarchs and Merchant Queens in Africa. Professor Achebe, welcome. Thank you so very much, Dr. Evans. It's just such a pleasure. And okay, right. To be here. So, <laughs> let us suppose you and I traveled back in time before the transatlantic slave trade, before colonialism. Do you think we'd find greater gender equality in Europe or Africa? I think you know where my answer is going to come from. <laughs> tell me, tell me. Definitely in Africa. Definitely in Africa. Um, I like to say that um, what we see today in Africa has everything to do with our colonial past. And so African women are trying to get back to a semblance, we're not there, mm. a semblance of their pre-colonial past. So in the pre-colonial era, for the most part, um, I would say that you had systems in Africa that were complementary, right? That's what a lot of theorists, a lot of historians, a lot of people that do this work talk about complementary systems. So I use the term complementarity a lot in my work. I also use the term dual sex systems in operation, which was a term that Kamene Okonjo, who works on Nigerian evil women, coined in the early 80s. So she talks about there being a dual sex system in which each sex in Africa took care of what was important to them. So you had men taking care of what was important to men and women taking care of what is important to women. And it didn't matter whether you were talking about a centralized system, because as you know, there are different types of societies, centralized versus small scale. I hate the term non-centralized just because I always say, why are we comparing these small scale societies to the quote unquote normative centralized? Who's to say that the centralized society is normative? And so I like to sort of look at societies on their own terms. And so I say these small scale societies that have no kings or queens or egalitarian systems and centralized. But yes, there was an, an equality. Okay. In, so in the these, two, these two key themes, the idea of dual sex governance, men governing men and women governing women, and also this idea that women's insights and contributions were recognized and rewarded. Yes. So th those are the key ideas. Here's a, a methodological question before we sort of kick off the substantive discussion. How can we know what gender relations were like back then? Like, what can we learn from language and linguistics? Or what does gender neutral language tell us about the position of women? Can you just tell us how you investigated this? Yes. So that's, that's just a phenomenal question. I'm an oral historian by training. And so everything that I do, right? I would say that 90% of what I do is oral history. And in order to do oral history in Africa and do it well, I mean, there, I think there's a reason why anyone who studies Africa, part of that study, if you're doing it at the PhD level, is language. Because without understanding, because language is culture and it becomes 
not just culture, it is the way of seeing and being in the world. So without an understanding of one's language, you cannot understand the world that we live in, right? And that's my starting point. You cannot be an oral historian without language, right? How do you uncover this is what you, you had asked me. Yeah. Before I started doing my work at the PhD level, the archives obviously are what we are most familiar with. But people tend to think that those archives just emerged and they're not biased and all of that. You know, let's talk about the history of the archive. Who is writing the archive, right? How did the archive come to be? The archive came to be as a result of a colonizing enterprise. And I would say that you can't expect your colonizers who are there to take away your land to write glowing stories about you. So let's start there. But that doesn't mean that I do not look at the, the archives, right? So for me in trying to uncover, because that's what we're doing, is that I look for history and evidence wherever I can find evidence mm -hmm. in language, in proverbs, proverbs that explain society to itself, in song. When I do women's history, I look at jewelry history. I look at cloth history. I necessarily have to go in search of history wherever I can find it because these colonial masters that put together that which we now have as history, right, in the archive, did not, for the most part, concern themselves with women's realities. It was white men going into the African rural eras and interviewing old Black men about whatever, right, whatever it was that concerned them. And very seldom did we get the point of view of African women. And so, yes, it's, it's, it's in there, but you kind of have to search for it. And Could you give me some examples, like from songs or, or language? Uh, yeah, give me some examples of how we do this. And so, yes. you know, Chris, I think some of our listeners might be economists or political scientists, yeah. and they won't be familiar with how to understand. Okay, so let me give you an example of uh, the gender neutrality of African languages. So English for me is a learned language. So I like to go back to my mother tongue. So let me give you an example. And, and this is an example I give to my students. Um, in the Igbo language, so the Igbo people um, live for the most part in Nigeria, number over, actually, I used to say 30 million. I, the new numbers are about 40 million right now. So it's a huge, huge numbers of people. Um, and the Igbo language is gender specific. So there is no term for brother and sister. It is the same term. So brother is one, sister is one. What does one mean? One means the child of my mother. That's the translation. The child of my mother. So how do we discern? brother from sister, gender, you have to ask a question, right? Brother is one net, sister is one net. Now, if I want to know more, I'm going to ask what kind of one net, <laughs> right? And then the answer will be one nem wani, the child of my mother that is female, right? That's my sister. One nem moke the child of my mother, who is male. And this is why 
if sometimes when people interact with Africans, sometimes, and, the, and Africans are speaking in the English language, for instance, sometimes they mix up gender, right? They're talking about, they're trying to say he, but they say she, or they want to say she and they say he. And again, it's because in our indigenous languages, that's just non-existent, right? So that's one good example of the gendered neutrality. And the same, which I do talk about in my book, is the name for God, right? God that created everything is neither male or female in most African societies, right? God is God. God is the male and female forces coming together. But because we are stuck with these gender-specific languages, European languages, English, French, Portuguese, German, right? African writers or African, Africanist writers that are writing in these European languages have necessarily had to write in ways because the English language doesn't allow you to really sort of describe a gendered, gendered neutral force. So I even talk to my students about people of my dad's generation, right? In things called art, he talked about God with he. The evil God is not he. But that was all that the English language allowed him to do. God is he, she. Mm -hmm. um, may I give an example from a language? Because I, I, it resonated. As soon as I read your book, this resonated. So um, I, I speak Bemba, which is a Bantu language, yeah. in the Gambia and DRC. And the name for women is Banamayo. And that really means mothers of mothers. And I think that speaks to your point about dual sex governance. So you have Banamayo, like mothers of mothers, and Bashitata, fathers of fathers. And, yeah. you get, and also in, in Bemba, you gay, uh, the woman is called by the name of her first child, regardless of male or female. And I think that resonates with the importance of fertility and how women yes. gain respect by giving birth. But anyway, I wanted yeah. to share that point about the yeah. dual sex governance. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, this, this, this importance of fertility that you're talking about, so vitally important, right? And I argue in my earlier work that, um, Fertility is so important that, that, you know, you don't necessarily as an African woman have to have physically, right, given birth mm. to become, mm. right? So there are ways in which African women can assume motherhood. Mm. And so I talk about biological parenthood in Africa being subordinated, right, to social parenthood. But I mean, that's another conversation all in and of itself. But I, you know, I mentioned that because you mentioned the importance yeah. of fertility and it's so important, but I just wanted to sort of trouble that a little to say that fertility does not necessarily okay. in the African context have to be biological fertility. It could be social. That's really important. Right. And that reminds me, no, I wanted to add a little point to your point about uh, how we know in our methodology. One thing I found really helpful, for example, if you look at sculptures, from Southern Nigeria or from Benin, it's always that gender complementarity. It's the man and the woman. And, and sometimes they, they emphasize fertility with particular body parts. And you don't, and you also, yeah. you don't necessarily see that in other parts of the world. And I think that really speaks to your point about gender complementarity. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Let me have my gender. next question. Sorry. Okay. Cause I was going to talk about gender, not just gender complementarity, but gender fluidity, right? 
fluid and flexible, where you can be born female, right? But be categorized as socially male. Or okay, yeah, this point is male. interesting. I don't understand this fully. I'd like you to explain this to me, yeah. Right? Or be categorized as a social female. And there's no tension. And so, and, and that's why this, this thing called gender is huge in Africa. There's no tension. There's no confusion, right? That gender is fluid and flexible and allows biological females to become male. You know, I have an article talking about the female king of colonial Nigeria where I say, and she became a man. And I have another article talking about men that are women in Igbo land, right? Male priestesses. So there is no tension, no conflict. And it's because of this flexibility and fluidity that you now have institutions in Africa, like the institution of female husband, where a woman can marry, and again, it's about this fertility that we're talking about, mm-hmm. right? A woman can marry another woman, right? And if I am doing the marrying, if I decide I want to marry you, Alice, what am I going to do? Uh, I the bride will in me, right? Exactly. I am assuming the positionality of husband. Mm-hmm. And so I become what is called the female husband. Female is my sex, biological sex. Husband is my gender. And I want to marry you, so I have to pay bride price, bride, well, bride wealth, or bride service, which has absolutely nothing to do with you, but has everything to do with the children that you will be giving to me. Mm-hmm. That's fertility, right? Non-biological, but still, I become a parent because of this union. And can I ask a question? So forgive me for not understanding, but I totally understand everything you say that you then become the husband. Yeah. Doesn't that schema imply a degree of gender hierarchy? If it's the husband who has the rights to the children, if it's the husband as a sort of masculine characteristics who has all those rights and entitlements, doesn't that imply a a gender hierarchy? Like if there was total gender equality, surely we wouldn't call that more authoritative rights-bearing position husband. Mm. We'd just call, we, we'd just mm-hmm. say anyone could have it. So yeah. I, I totally accept that women can. Let me trouble that a little bit. So let me trouble that. And that's a phenomenal question. Let me trouble that a little bit. I like to start by saying, and it goes back to fertility and the importance of children in Africa. Every single child belongs, right? So this whole idea of an illegitimate king out of Christianity, came out of the colonial enterprise. Indeed, the idea of Mrs. That's a, people don't understand this, right? Pre-colonially, African women did not take their husband's names because African women are long-term visitors in their husband's homes. So that whole idea of bride price, bride wealth, bride service has absolutely nothing to do with the woman. It has everything to do with the children. Why is that important? If bride price, bride wealth, bride service is not paid, those children belong to the woman, the mother, mm-hmm. bear her name and belong to her lineage. Mm-hmm. So a, a child always belongs. And so when you talk about the husband, right, he has rights over those children. He does because he is, in fact, 
paying for those rights. That's what bride price, bride wealth, and bride services has absolutely nothing to do with the wife. It has everything to do with granting the husband rights over his future children. And those rights are the right for those children to bear his name. Without bride price, bride wealth, bride service, those children belong to the mother and her lineage and bear her name. So it's almost as though it's that amount that you're putting down to grant you rights. Without that amount, those children do not belong to you, do not belong to your lineage, do not bear your name. So it's a transfer of rights by paying right price, right wealth, right service, because that's everything. And in my, in my writing, I actually argue that because earlier writers talked about African women as being sold to the highest bidder mm. for their reproductive and productive labors. Mm. Mm. It is a misunderstanding and a misinterpretation of the bride wealth, bride service, bride uh, uh, price system. Mm. It has absolutely nothing to do with a woman. And so in my work, I actually argue that a more apt term for it in English should be child price, right? Mm. Child wealth and child service, because it has everything to do with granting this man and his lineage rights over the children. And those rights begin with the right of that child to bear his name. Without that, kids don't bear their names. And I think a really important point to, to make, and this relates to, in Africa, traditionally, people valued wealth in people. People accumulated yeah. wealth by having children. So, so control yeah. over labor was imperative. It wasn't about how much land you yeah. had. Land wasn't high value. What you really wanted was wealth in people. And so that's raised the importance. Yeah. Okay, I'm with you. Thank you. Okay, next exactly. question. So <laughs> in your, I'm learning so much. In Eurasian religions, in Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Confucianism, Taoism, women were not really revered as knowledgeable authorities. So can you tell me more about women's role in traditional African religions? Wonderful. You know, I, in my first book, argue that you cannot understand African history by focusing exclusively on the human visible world. That is to tell just one part of history. That is a fundamental misunderstanding of Africa, people that just focus on the human realm. And why do I say this? And it's, and, and it's something that is so important to all of the work that I do, right? The African world, the way that Africans conceptualize their world is in dualities, right? The physical, human world, the seen world. I'm looking at you, you're looking at me. We are seeing each other is actually a less powerful world than the unseen world. So we believe that there's spirits all around us. We just can't see them, right? And so what I've tried to do in my work is to historicize those spirits, right? And it has anything to do with whether you want to call it spirituality or religion, right? And so in the African worldview, you know, I have actually in my work, I move away from women because the female, I call it the female principle. And why do I, why did I coin that term? And I use that term for the female principle to talk about religion, because for the most part, we're not talking about human women, even though human women were extremely active, right? In African religiosity, they were, they were priestesses, they were prophetesses, right? 
um, and all of that. But even more powerful was what I call the female spiritual principle. And it's these forces, unseen forces, that were female. Starting from the very top, God, the supreme God, creator of everything, being neither male or female, but being a combination of both. Mm. And God was too big to be worshipped direct, directly, right? And so Africans sort of relied on these gods and goddesses, they're called lesser gods and goddesses, who were person, per, personifications of natural phenomena. But I argue in my work that in the African context, the most important, the most powerful of these lesser deities were in fact female. And how do I get, well, how do I arrive at that, right? I arrive at that by just really simply, let's sort of look at this. In order for people to survive, I don't care where you are, you need water, right? Without water, you are dead. The other thing that you need is food and you get your food from land. So those two, water and land, so vitally important. What are the deities in the African system that are in charge of water? For the most part, they're female. Hmm. The goddess of the waters and the goddess of the lands. Very, and I'm, again, I'm not trying to say because there are over 3,000 different African nations of people, right? That, be, that speak different languages and have different cultures. So I'm not trying, we have to generalize sometimes when we talk about Africa because it's just such vast uh, a continent. So I would, I'm not trying to speak in absolutes. So please, nobody tell me, oh, this small group here has the <laughs> of the of the lands it's male. I am saying that for the most part, mm. right? Over 3,000 different nations of people, vast majority are deities uh, in charge of land and water are female. And those are the most important and most powerful of deities, especially when we figure into the equation that God, for the most part, is not worshipped, directly worshipped by Africans, right? God has paid high respect. We worship in the traditional system, the deities, the lesser gods and goddesses. So they are so much more present in our lives. And like I said, the most powerful are female. And as you go down, it's, you will see this complementarity that we're talking about. God is both, right? When you have a female deity, for the most part, you have a male priest in charge of the female deity. When you have a male uh, uh, God, you have a female priestess in charge of this male God. Again, this complementarity, this Going back to maleness and femaleness makes this complete entity, which is this balance. Balancing male and femaleness is what African cultures is looking for. Okay, I'm with you. So we have this idea of gender complementarity and also and dual sex governance. Now, one thing I found really interesting and perhaps even more distinct uh, to Africa, the, uh, or at least Yoruba and Igbo that we definitely do not see in Europe, is networks of solidarity amongst women, like in Igbo land, like women meeting together, discussing their issues, and then sitting on a man, you know, protecting their turf from male encroachment. Can you tell me more about those networks? Because I think that's phenomenally important. You know, it's not just about having a few elite women, isolated women, top dogs, you know, queen, queen mothers, but having that solidarity between women, I, I think is 
really fundamental and really distinctive. You know, it's only from the 1970s that Europe and the USA have had feminist movements. That's a new thing. That's a modern thing that we've just arrived at. Um, so for me, yeah. Igbo land was way ahead, way oh, yeah. ahead. And, I, and you know, I'm happy to say this each time to my students because they always ask, because I'm a feminist, right? And the first thing they ask is, oh, that's why you go by your maiden name. And I'm like, it's, yeah, it, it's about feminism, but it's about African feminism, right? Before pre-colonially, no African, this title of Mrs. came with the Christian church. There was no African woman that was Mrs. Anything. So we all bore, right, our names. But the question that you asked about solidarity goes back to my privileging, right, of different kinds of societies in Africa, right? Centralized societies, we're talking about kings and queens, right? That's the different beast. Mm. Non-centralized society, you're talking about really groups of people. So in non-centralized, and I, again, I hate that term, but it's been something that's been drilled into me. So I sometimes use it. So let me sort of scratch that. Small-scale societies is what I prefer. So in these small-scale societies, such as a society that of my birth, Iboland, right? Leadership is in the hands of a group of male elders and female elders, right? Age is so important in these cultures. That's what sets you apart from people who are younger, right? And because in these small scale societies, you don't have one king or queen. In fact, they have proverbs that tell you, you know, if you want to be a king, go be a king in your mother's backyard. That's an evil proverb, right? We don't like kings. And we have another one that says, whereas the evils have no kings. They don't respect kings, right? It's leadership in the society and in the group. So in societies like that, groups of women come together, right, in order to lead themselves, in order to support themselves. So you see it in politics. So instead of having one person in charge, you have groups of women in charge. You see it in economics, women coming together, right, to go to the marketplace. You see it um, socially, women coming together forming groups to say, work on this person's farm, right? Because I need help. And then tomorrow I will work on somebody else's farm, right? So groups of women helping each other out, right? In economics, I talked about, you know, going to the marketplace, but also forming credit systems, right? So this banking system that we think that is something that came, didn't come. We've had that in Africa from time immemorial. Right. In my part of the world, we call them Isusu credit systems, where as women, we would come together and every month put in a certain amount of money into this pool. Right. And if you, Alice, needed, oh, I need to, I want to do a little expansion to my home, you would just come to our group and say, I want a loan. Right. And we, as women, will loan money to one another without interest. Right. So you had all of these groups, right, in these societies, and they were exceedingly important. And so when you start talking about how do women defend their turf, you talked about sitting on a man mm -hmm. or making more on a man. It wasn't something that was just done in West Africa. You have it all over Africa. Right. So when you see women 
using nudity as protest, mm-hmm. which is like Stella Nianzi. Yes, which in essence, that's what that is, right? Sitting on a mat is really the most extreme form of punishment that women have. So in Ibulan, they call it sitting on a man. Among the Kom of, of Cameroon, they call it Anlu, right? It's the same thing. And you see it in East Africa, you see it in South Africa, women using nudity to say enough is enough. If you continue with this ill treatment or whatever it is that you're doing, and it's, it's, a, it's a punishment waged on men, right? If you continue, we will act. And we'll act in a manner that you're not going to like, right? So that's something that, yeah. And when, 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 I forget where I read it, but I, I read an interesting conceptualization of the nudity protest. I'd be interested in your take. So you know how there are protests in Ukraine, female, where women are naked as a form of maintaining ownership of their body and challenging the cult of chastity. One conceptualization of the African women's nudity protests is to remind men that they came from a woman. So it's to remind men of women's importance, uh, fertility, going back to your earlier point. I wonder what you think of that. You have it. You have it. That is it 100%. It is to remind the community that this thing called the mother's, a mother's body is powerful. Motherhood is so vitally important and powerful. It is the mother that creates the ruler. It is the mother that creates society. Without the mother's womb, society does not exist. And so we also say that this mother's body, and it's not just any woman's body, it's the mother's body Mm. that is exceedingly powerful, right? The mother gives birth, creates, and continues the world, but the mother can sue her body and sue the curse take away life. Mm-hmm. And life I think I just one thing to add to that, the point that you made in your book, like, for example, the role of the queen mother. So the queen mother is the kingpin. The queen mother yeah. has huge authority. She might even have her own court, her own jurisprudence. Yeah, but the, yeah so, so that, that was really embedded in yeah. the system. Okay, now I have another question. So we talked a little bit about African relations in general, but there was also some heterogeneity which societies would you say were more gender equal? You know, if you were mapping out gender relations across Africa, where do you think would be the more gender equal places? And which places do you think were more patriarchal? You know, that is a difficult question because you're talking about a huge continent. But some of the things that I have noticed just in my research and, um, you know, been doing this for forever, it seems. Your sixth book. (laughs) (laughs) It seems as though, like, it really sort of depends on the society. I, you know, in my work, I have argued that it it seems as though the less centralized a society is, you start to see a lot more Mm -hmm. of the equality, of this flexibility, of this complementarity. And it's not to say that you don't see it, right, in centralized societies because look at let's take the asante first. yeah exactly i was just thinking right? yeah. have the asante and and most people when they think about asante society they're just thinking about the king no there's the asante henna and there's the asante hemma queen mother side by side it is the queen mother that decides on who the 
king is going to be and vice versa. So this, this complementarity, right? So it's there. But, you, you know, in some societies, like I said, if it, the more centralized, I start thinking about societies like, for instance, the Nyangwezi, right, in East Africa, where societies were so centralized that, you know, a woman's um, position in society really had everything to do with her rank, right? And if she was not um, blessed to have been born, you know, from one of these, um, you know, societies of like a queen mother or a princess, or then perhaps her status in society is not that high. Mm-hmm. But the point is, is that African societies are not black or white. So even in those societies, there were always mechanisms, right, for women to elevate themselves. And so among a society like the Nyamwesi of East Africa, women could become spirit mediums and rise mm-hmm. to the level of these male kings and the, the queen mothers, mm-hmm. the Buganda queen mothers and princesses, mm-hmm. right? So there was always that mechanism. And again, we're talking about pre-colonial society, right? Because colonialism hasn't come in and sort of turned things topsy-turvy. But there's always a mechanism for Mm. women to to elevate themselves. So, I mean, so I think you made two points there. So looking back at the historical record, we certainly seem to see fewer examples of women's leadership, autonomy in places like Kenya and Uganda, maybe than the Gulf of Guinea, for example. And I, and you, I, I, you know, I don't know you don't that's think so? actually. Okay. You know, it depends. Mm. Because when you talk about Buganda, I think about the Buganda Queen Mothers. They were extremely powerful, mm. right? So it really depends. To me, it depends on the nature of the society, right? And for the most part, um, a lot of the writing has been about decentralized societies. And a lot of some writings have favored a masculinist, right? Because who's doing the writing? So to me, um, it, it's very difficult for me to sit here and say like in all, you know, I can sort of look at African society and say this as a fact, because frankly speaking, I think that there's a lot that we don't know. Yeah. There really is a lot that we don't know. Okay, let me give you two concrete examples. Okay, so I, for example, I read that in the Mau Mau riots, I think women were 10% of the anti-colonial protests in Kenya. So a relatively small proportion as compared to the ABBA women's protests in southern Nigeria. So looking at women's share of protesters, that that would seem to be like one, one quantitative example of a contrast. Or another, or another sort of indicator is that in West Africa, as you say in your book, women controlled the markets. And that seemed to be a distinctly West African phenomenon, unless you correct me. Like, so at least, the, at least controlling the markets, controlling commerce, that's a huge thing, right? And that seemed more prevalent in the Gulf of Guinea. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is, and, you know, I kind of want to throw that back at you because I know that your work is about that, right? These, there are no simple answers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that is just, to me, that's a million dollar question. I don't, I, I personally don't know the answer to why mm-hmm. it is, for instance, right, that in Western Africa, there is a proficient, uh, profici- oh, can I say that word? Let me look for another word. There are many 
um, Market Queens, for instance, and they own the market. I, I really, like you, 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 I know you asked me, but I don't know what the answer is. It's okay. It's I okay. No, it's just, I don't know why that's the case. I mean, it's similar to if somebody asked me, so why are women owning the markets? Why are they uh, uh, sh uh, long distance and short distance uh, traders? Why do you find that mainly in West Africa? Another question could be, why are there spirit mediums in East Africa, in the Horn of Africa, in Southern Africa, but not in West Africa? We don't have spirit mediums. We have spirit possession. Now, I hope somebody can correct me. But Wait, the, what's the difference? What's the difference between spirit medium and spirit possession? That, that, you know, that, okay. So spirit mediumship, right. are societies, right? It's not one individual. Okay. Spirit possession is when a, an individual can become possessed. This individual is not necessarily a part of a society of people who are possessed of okay. spirit. Whereas you see in Southern Africa, East Africa, the Horn of Africa, North Africa, spirit possession societies of groups of people who have been possessed by a spirit. So it's and like, then they're collectively challenging. Collectively channeling okay, okay. all of this phenomenal power. We don't see that in West Africa. I don't know why. I mean, I, I hope there's somebody out there that can help me answer. I just don't. It's just, you know, it's just one of those things. But we do have spirit possession. Okay, I have another conundrum for yeah. you. I have another conundrum. I know I didn't answer it, but I don't know. No, it's, it's fine. It's fine. It's okay. I think you have to establish what we know we don't. Okay. So here is my next conundrum for you. Okay. So the Gulf of Guinea seems simultaneously oppressive and respectful in some ways. So we agree, you know, women organized to protect their turf against male encroachment. They moved freely in the public sphere. They gained independent wealth and authority. When uh, the Portuguese came to the coast of West Africa, they had to deal with women. Women often married Portuguese traders. They had their own independent wealth, trade networks. So women were definitely powerful, no question about it, independently of their own accord, not just because they were married to some male lineage. I'm, I totally understand that. But there were simultaneously, and I, you can correct me on what word we use here, but some very oppressive practices. So let me give two examples. Yes. One pawn ship, the domestic institution of slavery, and most of those enslaved people were women. Women were enslaved by their fathers or uncles to cover debts. And so I wonder, doesn't the fact that it was mostly women who were enslaved indicate their low status within their household, that they could be so vulnerable to that? That's my first point, uh, first example of oppression. Secondly, so Southern Nigerians, Yoruba, Ibo, clearly revered female authorities. But if we look at female genital mutilation today, 50% of Yoruba and 50% of Igbo women have been genitally mutilated. And that's usually explained in terms of marriage ability. Girls are cut to please men, enhance their marriage prospects. And so how do you make sense of those apparent contradictions? I want you to explain it to me. Yes. So I'm going to start with the second. And okay. I'm going to this by saying that I'm only doing this... Um, I typically do not, and, and I'm going to have some corrections as we move forward, right? That term female genital mutilation, in my mind, is an extremely offensive term. Okay. Um, I don't use it. 
I don't talk about it. They're, they're, I don't even teach about. And, 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 you know, first of all, we're talking about female circumcision. So let's call it what it is. It's female circumcision, right? And I can go into the history of that and why certain groups do that. Um, so that's one. Okay, I apologize. I apologize. No, 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 no. I'm just, you know, I just wanted to sort of... No, no, no. I, I, I'm listening. I'm it listening. is not, yeah, it is an extremely offensive term. And, you know, um, and again, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm, I'm going to get into this because I want to start and be on record as somebody who is against female circumcision. But having said that, right, there are certain things that we just need to understand about why it happens and why it will continue to happen, right? And why um, the solution is going to be an inbred solution and not an outside solution, right? Um, okay, so that's one. Uh, let's, let me also talk about numbers. I'm not sure where you got your percentages from. Oh, okay. 50% of people, women are not circumcised. In fact, I can tell you the first time, and I'm talking about me as an evil woman, first time I ever heard about circumcision was when I came to the United States at age 20 something. And when, you know, everybody was talking about it and I was like, they've come again. Who's making this stuff up? Like that was how, and the reason was that I don't come from a society where this happens. Mm -hmm. Right. And, I, and, and I'm saying it to say that the percentage of evil women I'm not saying, again, there, these, there, there are no absolutes, but there is, there is no way under the sun that 50% of people, women are, are circumcised. I can't really speak as forcefully about Yoruba women because that's not the group that I study, but I do know enough about Yoruba women to be, you know, I, you know, I would be shocked if 50% of Yoruba women are circumcised, right? Um, one of the things that you have to realize is that, you know, when we talk about female circumcision today, female circumcision has been used in or brought up in, in instances of, um, you know, when it comes to um, um, citizenship, you know, trying to sort of move justification for being granted asylum, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. I myself have received applications and be an expert yeah. witness of people and saying, so yeah, it, yeah. It sort of sort of complicated and convoluted, you know, this whole um, uh, notion, right? And, and numbers as well. Okay. So let me now talk just a little bit about female circumcision. So female circumcision essentially occurs, it doesn't just occur in Africa, it occurs pretty much you know, I, I don't want to say worldwide, but we have case studies essentially in many places of the world. In terms of Africa, for where it happens, female circumcision tends to be a coming to age ritual, right? And I'm not trying to convolute it with Islam or anything. I'm just saying female circumcision pre-colonially, let's leave out religion and all of that, right? It's a coming to age ritual. If you were to take a society like the cocoon, you know, practice. And that's why I was saying that, honestly, Ibu Land, if there's anybody practicing, it's going to be such a small percentage. In all of my research, and I've researched Ibu Land since 1995, I have not come across it, right? But I do know that it happens because I had an aunt who 
was in the medical profession. And what they were doing was going into the rural areas where it did happen to essentially teach women how to do it, but do it safely. You can't eradicate something until you deal with the reason why it's happening, right? So let's take the kukuyu. It's a coming to age ritual. Young kukuyu boys are circumcised around age 13. And so are young women. It's all about coming to age ritual. But in kukuyu land right now, they've come up with what they call a circumcision of words. And that's why I was saying that any kind of eradication must be inbred because it's so rooted in culture, right? And so they themselves, as opposed to us sort of looking in and we're like, oh, this is all the, the, the subordination of women and, you know, all those arguments about, oh, it's done to women to deny them of their sexual, you know, uh, uh, what is it called, enjoyment and all of that. No. You know, um, so among the kukuyu, they've come up with what they call the circumcision of words. And again, I'm not going to sit here and say it's been eradicated because it hasn't. But there is that encouragement, right, for women to consider this aspect of what it is, what is circumcision. It's about not just the act of being circumcised, but it is the act of being elevated from girlhood to womanhood and all the things that we are taught about what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a mother and all of that. So what you're finding in Kukuyu land right now is that they're saying, let's do away with the circumcision and let's do the teaching. So they're talking about a circumcision of words, right? And so, yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot that we can say. It's a very touchy, I think, subject. And, you know, I like to say too, it's something that I personally, I mean, every so often I teach my women and gender, women's gender and sexuality in Africa. I never teach about circumcision. And one of the reasons being that I remember when Alice Walker came out with Possessing the Secret of Joy, that was the first time that in my realization, I'm like, whoa, what is going, is she, did she just make this up? And then I started doing research. It propelled me to do research. And I remember reaching out to some of the most powerful African women that I knew. And, you know, in areas where I know that female circumcision occurs. And I said to them, I said, why aren't you challenging her? Why are you letting her, you know, you know, uh, what is it called? Keep perpetuating some of these falsehoods. And again, I started this by saying, personally, I'm not in agreement and I want to see us move in a different direction. We have to do it with an understanding and we have to, it has to come from within as opposed to people sitting in the West and be like, oh, I'm going to teach you. No, you're not, right? African women have to decide in the societies in which it happens. And, and this is why I don't speak about it. I don't come from a society where this is an issue, right? I don't know anybody as an evil woman personally that's been circumcised. So I don't feel like I even have the authority to speak about it, knowing that circumcision is something that is spoken about in closed, under closed doors. Women talk to women. And that's what I got from the strong African women that I reached out to, to say, why aren't you confronting this? And, and they said to me, we're not exposing this to a Western gaze. It's not their business. Mm -hmm. If we're going to have conversations about this, 
We're going to have these conversations within our society, knowing full well that conversations around female circumcision don't even occur with men being there. And so this is my reason personally, as an Africanist historian that works on women, gender, and sexuality issues, I don't teach about this because I don't feel like, I, I don't, I don't know enough, like I know the book knowledge part of it, but I don't really know enough because I haven't experienced it in the ways that people that I know have to be an authority in my mind to speak of it, right? And so for me, in my writing, I talk about female circumcision. I know that um, a lot of Africanists write about, um, they call it uh, genital cutting. I have a problem with genital cutting, okay. personally. And the reason why is that there are many forms of female. I use female circumcision because it's this overreaching term. There are many forms of female circumcision. The most um, uh, serious form, which is only practiced in very small pockets of areas in Northern Africa, like in Sudan, which is in fibrillation, yeah. is in essence what Alice Walker was talking about in Possessing the Secret of Joy. It is not the most common. No, sure, sure. That's just Sudan in Africa, right? So, but again, I'm not trying to diminish. It's still vitally important. We need to do something about it, right? And so my argument is that in most forms of female circumcision, other than infibulation, nothing is cut. It is the scraping, right, of the foreskin, much like the foreskin of the penis is scraped during male circumcision, right? And again, please don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to minimize, but I'm trying to put this in historical perspective about why do, what in the societies where it occurs, why does it occur? I think why that's is the there such, where is there such, why is it, why is it taking so long, right? To get to a point of eradication. Will we ever get to a point of eradication and your guess is as good as mine because it is not about denying women of sexual pleasure. It's so much more deeply, deeper rooted. And it's rooted in customs and cultures of, of really um, coming to age, right? And so, yes, I want to be part of, you know, um, I want to be an ally in the sense of contributing the way that they feel comfortable with me contributing. If I'm invited to contribute, I will contribute. But for the most part, I'm like, you know, if this is not a topic that I typically discuss because I think that, you know, it's been so politicized where it's almost gotten to a point where it's the West versus the rest of us, right? And the West is the one dictating for African women, you know, what is problematic. And especially when I put this hand in hand with the mutilation of the female body in the West, when we are tearing our bodies up with, with, with surgeries, types of surgeries, whether it's breast augmentation or butt augmentation or straightening or no, seriously, where does it? No, no, I, 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 yeah, sure. Why are we calling that mutilation? And for me, again, I'm, I have a problem with both, right? So for me, it comes down to who has the power of naming. Right. And certainly in this case, it's not, it's not African women naming this. Right. I, I, you know, I take my cue from, um, uh, she's an anthropologist 
of the Sudan, Sandra Hill, who's just done terrific work on female circumcision and essentially talking about why she, as a white woman, does not have the right and should not be speaking to this, that she will talk about this. There's certain things that she will talk about, mm. but only when she's invited to do so. Right. Yes, of course. Right. And I think that that is so vitally important. So that's the uh, female circumcision part of it. Then you had asked, I don't know what the... Oh, yes, about pawnship. I, I, I mentioned oh, yeah. that. And, and let me just let me just thank you. Let me just thank yeah. you. I, uh, Wanda, I really appreciate you, correct, you, you correcting me on these points. I really appreciate that. Yeah. So no, the no, pawnship... I didn't mean to be offended no, or anything like that. I just, you know, again... No, it, you're right. You're right. Uh, you're right. to uh, Correct me. Uh, that's why we're talking, right? So I can yes. learn from your expertise. So yeah, pawnship, as I understand it, so that is the domestic institution of slavery. Yeah. Many of those, sla- many of those enslaved persons were women. And yeah. doesn't that indicate their greater vulnerability within the household, that they would be more likely to be enslaved? Yeah. Ah, you know, you, you yeah. correct me there again. You know, again, it's, you know, Africa's huge. Um, and I think, you know, when you talk about the indigenous, indigenous forms of slavery, I think that, you know, you're right in, in a sense, right? But I work on indigenous slavery in um, West Africa, mainly among the Igbo. And um, it's, you know, when you talk about pawnship, it wasn't just women that were pawned, right? Everybody was, you know, male. Yes. But... Um, there are types of slave systems, especially, and I think you will see them, especially in the West African region, Cameroon, Nigeria, Ghana, just that whole, the so-called slave coast, which became, you know. Um, and it, these are systems in which women marry deities, right? And they have various different names, um, depending on what culture you're looking at. Um, in my work, um, in the Igbo context, it's called Igomogo, becoming the in-law of a deity. And essentially what, what it's happening is that it is mimicking this female husband, wife phenomena in the spiritual realm. And this form of slavery emerged as a result in response to the aftermath of the Atlantic slave trade. Oh, yes, yes. Right? So... People, these communities had been so decimated, right, by kidnapping, uh, wars for, for, you know, to, to uh, recover individuals and human beings for the slave uh, market at the coast, right? So these societies were depleted. Their populations were depleted. How did they look to essentially guard their communities and raise population? Deities, goddesses, and gods started to marry human beings. And who were they marrying? Women. Mm. These women became enslaved to the deity in the sense that they could not marry anybody else. They're married to the deity, right? And so it is a form of slavery, but it is a form of slavery that I argue in my work that elevates women's status. As opposed to, it, you know, it, it, it's very, like to my students, it's confusing. I say, you know, the conundrum of slavery. Mm-hmm. Yes, slavery takes away rights, but in certain instances, you are, sti- you're, you are still enslaved, but your rights and your status in society 
and your power rises because of your association with a spiritual being that is so much more powerful than mere mortals. And so they're looking at me, they're like, how is that slavery? I'm like, it is slavery because these women have been enslaved to that deity, which means that they cannot marry human beings. Mm. So that in itself means that their rights have been taken away. So it's, it's almost like it's this conundrum of both taking away rights, but also improving rights. So I know, I don't know that I quite answered, but I'll, what I wanted to offer was just to um, offer just a little bit more information about how just very yes. and varied these exper experiences are in various parts of Africa. Okay, I have another question. I have another yeah. question historically. Okay. So I read that over the past two decades in Tanzania, 20,000 people have been estimated to have been killed as witches. Do you know how prevalent the witch hunts were historically? Like to what extent there's a, there's actually a, a new book by Dev Nathan um, and they, uh, and another co-author, and they argue that actually the transition from matrilineal to patrilineal, which has occurred under colonialism, actually exacerbated these witch hunts because mm -hmm. often seize land from elderly women in order to claim it as theirs. So I was wondering, what do we know from the historical record about witch hunts? Because again, I was thinking that witch hunts is an example of women's yeah, vulnerability. So I was wondering how that's changed. 100%. Yeah, I agree with you 100% there. I really do. Um, my work is not there. You know, you named certain people that have done some good work. Uh, there are a number of Africanists that have worked in this and sort of, um, you know, um, spent their time and, 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 and energy working on this. It's, it's not an expertise of mine. What I can say, though, is that when you look at African religions and the place of, you know, witchcraft, sorcery, you know, some of these other things, um, it, it sort of fits into that general, right, where you're looking at the spiritual world. And um, we do know that in general, that there are these spiritual forces that are good forces. And there are also spiritual forces that are not good. In other words, they're there to usurp right, yes, people's yes. souls. We know this, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and so um, that, I mean, that is, that's a given. That's a constant, whether we're talking about Africa or we're talking about the West. And all of the witch hunts, Salem witch hunts. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Part of the world, right? So yeah, I, I don't have the expertise there. No, no worries. I just throw me all these questions. At you. No, no, no. I agree with the uh, scholars that you um, that you mentioned. To me, it seems like that would make sense. Okay, I have another question. I have another question. Um, cast was practiced by some African societies. So they upheld rigid endogamy that women should marry within their ethnic group, hierarchies, inherited occupations. Do you see any differences with African societies that practice caste and those that didn't in terms of their gender relations? Because in India, there seems to be a very strong relationship between caste and gender in that women are the gateway to the caste system and they're policed. About pol policed in order to maintain jati and dogami. So I was wondering how you see caste working in the African context and if that has any Yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting question. I would actually argue that for the most part, and this might be a terminology thing for me, that I don't see African societies as caste-based you know, societies for the most part. 
I do understand what you're saying, but you know, in my work, um, I would argue that most African societies practice exogamy as opposed to endogamy. Right. Yes, yes, yes. And in fact, that there are rules there to make sure that people are marrying exogamously. Why? Because, you know, they don't want, you know, a lot of these inbred diseases that might materialize as a result of, quote unquote, you know, the way that Africans will look yes. at reading. Okay, right. I'm with you. I'm I would argue that, and, and there are very clear rules when you look at these societies about, okay, you can do this, but it's got to be an exogamous relationship. Mm. And they do this just to make sure you're not marrying your relative. When you think, okay, let me give you an example. When you look at the institution of um, polyandry, for instance, right? A lot of researchers don't actually, you know, we talk about polygamy, you know, when, and it's actually, um, Polygyny is the correct term, right? Where a man marries many wives, right? Um, yeah, that happens in Africa. But we also have polyandry, which is what I love to talk about, is when a woman marries many husbands, right? And even in those systems, there is still that insistence on exogamy as opposed to endogamy. And how do they practice, whether you're talking about polygamy in Nigeria or in the, uh, sorry, polyandry in Nigeria or the Congo or in North South, they're still insistent that when a woman marries her first husband, the second husband cannot come from the same area as the first husband. Oh, That's oh, the principle of exogamy, right? So I didn't know that. Thank they're you. They're not marrying. And the reason, Alice, was that Going back to your first question about solidarity, the marrying exogamously created these, um, uh, uh, what is it called? Um, like no, networks of uh, kinship. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Dynamics and modes of solidarity. And alliances. Yeah. Right? And alliances. So you marry exogamously. Let's just say, okay, I'm sitting in Michigan. I'm in the town of DeWitt. Let's just say it was a fictional village in Africa. And I marry someone from Detroit, right? That's an exogamous relationship. Now, the city of De Detroit and DeWitt are not going to go to war. Why? Because their daughter has married into Detroit. To go to war is to fight yourself. Right, right, right. Those principles of exogamy were there also to create these unifying influences between communities during the pre-colonial era. Okay. Okay. This is good. This is good. I'm learning. Okay. Final question. Final question. <laughs> okay. So your book shows examples of female leadership across the continent. Yeah. But today, if we look at parliaments today, yeah. Southern and Eastern Africa has exceptionally high rates of women's yes. parliament, South Africa, Rwanda, Ethiopia, yes. et cetera. Yes. But... In West Africa, and uniquely in West Africa, there seems to have been a reversal of fortunes. Yeah. Women only represent 16% of parliamentarians just on average across the region. Yes. Why do you think West Africa differs from the rest of the continent today, considering they've, they all had these examples of female leadership before colonialism? They were all under colonialism. What do you think? cause this reversal of fortunes in West Africa specifically? Yeah. It, it, you know, it's painful to me. It's sad. Mm, yes. Extremely correct. 
I can only try to sort of, you know, figure it out. I, you know, the only thing that I can say when I look at Rwanda, which Mm -hmm. is pretty much number one in the world in terms of not just gender priority, but really, you know, just amazing South Africa, all of these countries that he's named, you know, in the West Africa case study, the only thing I can think of is leadership, Mm -hmm. right? We did, because what happened to West Africa happened to East Africa, happened to South Africa, happened to all these other areas. So what is the difference now, right? These are societies pre-colonially where women were extremely powerful. And all of a sudden, colonialism reduced women, pushed us to the background, right? But we can't constantly, listen, we're in 2022, enough of blaming colonialism. Right, because some other areas, some other African countries have done the right things. So the only thing I can point to is it goes back to good leadership. You know, what are, you know, who are leaders? What are their, you know, what is important to them? Right. It this is an issue that is exceedingly painful to me. You know, when I look at and look at the country of my birth, right? And you know, we're way. <laughs> I don't even think we make because I had a top hundred list in my book, we're not anywhere close, mm. right? And, and, and that's all I can point to. It's not the lack of effort or the lack of doing on women's parts. Um, I think that it has, you know, a lot to do with the present nature of, of politics and, and governance uh, and who's in charge and, 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 and our leaders actually making this a priority. You know, in those areas that you've mentioned, it's coming from leadership where they're saying, yes, for this sure. is what's going to happen. And when I say leader, I'm talking at the top. The president of the nation is saying, this is important. And this is what is going to look at, look at Ethiopia, look at all the examples that you're talking about. This is by decree. I will make sure we're not talking about tokenism here. I will make sure that in my government, because women are more than in most of these places, 50% of the population, mm-hmm. they will be represented, Right. Um, why that's not happening more in West Africa, your bet is, your guess is as good as mine. I'm not a political scientist. May I? Okay, listen. The fact. Yeah. I think I can trust you to tell me when I'm totally wrong and to correct me. I think we, you and I have that relationship. So can I share my like please, little theory please. with you? Yeah. And I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I know that you'll correct me. You'll tell me, no, Alan. And I will tell you when I think, <laughs> I think that you're right on the mark, because I really want to hear this. Okay, okay. Yes. So number no. one, I totally agree with your point that leaders can choose to uh, institute female quotas, even in West Africa. So uh, President Wade in Senegal, in response to feminist lobbying, he instituted a gender quota. So Senegal is now ranked seventh in the world for women in parliament. Yeah. That said, my hypothesis is so... Um, Nathan Nunn and uh, Wan Chekron, they have done research showing that transatlantic slavery may have exacerbated distrust, ethnic divisions, and ethnic divides. And of course, it was West Africa that was hardest hit by the transatlantic slave trade because of its proximity to Jamaica, to Virginia, et cetera. So as all those slave raiders went, that exacerbated ethnic divisions. Why ethnic divisions? A problem. So today in West Africa, 
Ghanaian and Southern Nigerian women are still in markets. They're entrepreneurs. They're mama bands, as you say in your book. You know, women are, are notorious for owning multiple Mercedes Benz. So yes, women are still in the workforce. Women are still independently wealthy and powerful. But what I wonder is if the transatlantic slave trade exacerbated distrust and divisions. And on top of that, the artificial imposition of colonial borders. I'm going to add that to your argument. Together, all these different ethnicities and all these different religions. So what's another unique feature of West Africa is that, so for example, Nigeria has Muslims and Christians, and there is an element of religious violence. Mm -hmm. uh, And in many of the countries along the coast of Guinea. And that's an effect of the arbitrary colonial imposition of borders. Yes. So what that means is even if women are powerful uh, economically, it's very difficult to mobilize and create strong networks of national solidarity because you have all those ethnic divisions. So how can you mobilize for a gender quota? How can you mobilize as women qua women? And also, I also think that if you're, if ethnicity is politicized, it may not be your priority to have a women leader. You'd rather have someone from your ethnic group, from your village, from your region. So your priority isn't necessarily way we want gender equality. We want, we want representation in another way. So my theory, my, my thinking, and you should critique me, is that transatlantic slave trade exacerbated ethnic divisions the, and distrust and the imposition of colonial borders force those religions to be part of the same country, which makes women's mobilization hard. Phenomenal. The, the, yes, let me just add to that. A phenomenal, because when you start, I'm like, why didn't I think of this? 100%, 100%. When you, and, and then when you add it, let's add to the fact, right, that the other nations that we're talking about, different parts of Africa, they're less population, they have less population density. Yes. Right? So, I don't care where it is, where else you're looking at. One out of every fourth African is a Nigerian, right? Also, sort of buttressing your argument, in Nigeria alone, we have 550, sorry, 512 different ethnic groups of people that speak different languages and have different, I'm not talking about dialects, right? In the, in the Igbo language, we have over 50 dialects. So that's not what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about different languages. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying all of this to say that you have a very population dense area, which is that West African area, right? With all these different ethnic groups, there's no such thing as a national identity. You have, when we talk about national identities, we talk about that with regards to Tanzania. Why? Because Nyerere was able, actually, let me correct this a little bit, because we always say Nyerere was able to, Bibi Titi Mohammed, who a lot of people don't talk about, she was the one who taught Nyerere nationalism. She is the one, it was a woman, and you know, a Muslim woman that taught him that if you want to, your desire is to bring everybody together, speak Swahili and stop speaking Queen's English, right? So let me not say Nyerere, let me say Nyerere and Bibi Titi Mohammed, right? So in Tanzania, you have this national identity. You don't have it anywhere else, right? And so 512 different ethnic groups, right? If war breaks out today in Nigeria, you know, there's no national identity. When somebody asks me, what here, who are you? 
the first thing that comes to mind is not that I'm my children. The first thing I'm going to say is that I am evil. Mm. That is my nation. Then I will tell you I am a woman. This is how I define myself. Yeah, yeah. Third, I'll tell you I'm African before mm-hmm. I tell you that I'm Nigerian. And I think that that gives you a sense of this, what you would argue, right, in terms of, is there actually this sense of national, you know, nationalism, right, as a group solidarity when we were all sort of pieced together. And then you have, sometimes you have cousins on one side, you know, in Togo, and their cousins in, in, in Benin Republic because these arbitrary lines were drawn. So it makes absolutely no sense. So I agree 100%. Mm-hmm. I think that that, I think you're on to something big there. Yeah. Well, Professor Achebe, let me, let me hype up your book before we close. So this is Female Monarchs and Merchant Queens in Africa. It is a glorious read. It's not like a heavy, boring academic talk. It's exciting. It's a joy to read. It was absolutely the best book I read of 2021. I would recommend you buy it and give it to people for them. But buy yourself five copies, send it to everyone you know, because it is an enlightening and monumental book. Professor Ajebe, this was truly a great, a great and enlightening joy for me. Thank you so, so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Evans, for having me. This was, <laughs> this was just fabulous. <laughs> I appreciate having this opportunity to address your platform. Um, you know, those of us that are academics don't really have expectations after we write our books, right? And so if people pick up our books and read it, we are just so exceedingly excited. So thank you. Oh, people are going to pick up your book. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.